0: Welcome dear friends to Adventures in Audio, I'm Robert Crandall your host. On this podcast I will read short stories of horror, murder, crime, and the macabre. You can find this podcast on iTunes and other podcast directories listed as short stories with an additional S on the word stories or the website www.adventuresinaudio.net So, take a break from the rigors of life and sit back and relax. To enjoy this podcast to the fullest, it is advised to remove all mental debris from your brain. And once the chasms of your mind are void of all mental contamination. You're ready to enjoy these classic stories. Now it's time for the story of the week. It's another nightmare story. Now, if you've had a nightmare recently, you might want to hold off on listening to this until you're feeling better. Have you ever had a recurring nightmare? Well, I have, and they are very disturbing to say the least. Well, in this story, the main character has a recurring nightmare that comes true. Let's listen now to The Room in the Tower by E. F. Benson. It is probable that everybody who is at all a constant dreamer has had at least one experience of an event or a sequence of circumstances which have come to his mind in sleep being subsequently realized in the material world. But in my opinion, so far from this being a strange thing, it would be far odder if this fulfillment did not actually happen, since our dreams are, as a rule, concerned with people whom we know and places with which we are familiar. Such as might very naturally occur in the awake and daylit world. True, these dreams are often broken into by some absurd and fantastic incident which puts them out of court in regard to their subsequent fulfillment. But on the mere calculation of chances, it does not appear in the least unlikely that a dream imagined by anyone who dreams constantly should occasionally come true. Not long ago, for instance, I experienced such a fulfillment of a dream, which seems to me in no way remarkable and to have no kind of physical significance. The matter of it was as follows. A certain friend of mine, living abroad, is amiable enough to write to me about once in a fortnight. Thus, when fourteen days or thereabouts have elapsed since I last heard from him, my mind probably either consciously or subconsciously is expectant of a letter from him. One night last week I dreamed that I was going upstairs to dress for dinner. I heard, as I often heard, the sound of the postman's knock on my front door and diverted my direction downstairs instead. There, among other correspondence, was a letter from him. Thereafter, the fantastic entered, for on opening it, I found inside the Ace of Diamonds, and scribbled across it in his well-known handwriting. I'm sending you this for safe custody. As you know, it is running an unreasonable risk to keep aces in italy the next evening i was just preparing to go upstairs to dress when i heard the postman's knock and did precisely as i had done in my dream there among the other letters was one from my friend only it did not contain the ace of diamonds had it done so i should have attached more weight to the matter which as it stands seems to me a perfectly ordinary coincidence No doubt I consciously or subconsciously expected a letter from him, and this suggested to me my dream. Similarly, the fact that my friend had not written to me for a fortnight suggested to him that he should do so, but occasionally it is not so easy to find such an explanation. And for the following story, I can find no explanation at all. It came out of the dark, and into the dark it is gone again. All my life I have been a habitual dreamer. The nights are few, that is to say, when I do not find on awakening in the morning that some mental experience has been mine, and sometimes all night long. Apparently, a series of the most dazzling adventures befall me. Almost without exception, these adventures are pleasant, though often merely trivial. It is of an exception that I am going to speak. It was when I was about sixteen that a certain dream first came to me, and this is how it befell. It opened with my being set down at the door of a big red brick house where I understood I was going to stay. The servant who opened the door told me that the tea was being served in the garden and led me through a low, dark-paneled hall with a large, open fireplace onto a cheerful green lawn set round with flower beds. There were grouped about the tea table a small party of people, but they were all strangers to me except one. "'who was a schoolfellow called Jack Stone, "'clearly the son of the house, "'and he introduced me to his mother and father "'and a couple of sisters. "'I was, I remember, somewhat astonished to find myself here, "'for the boy in question was scarcely known to me, "'and I rather disliked what I knew of him. "'Moreover, he had left school nearly a year before. "'The afternoon was very hot.' and an intolerable oppression reigned. On the far side of the lawn ran a red brick wall, with an iron gate in its center, outside which stood a walnut tree. We sat in the shadow of the house opposite a row of long windows, inside which I could see a table with cloth laid, glimmering with glass and silver. This garden front of the house was very long, and at one end of it stood a tower of three stories, which looked to me much older than the rest of the building. Before long, Mrs. Stone, who, like the rest of the party, had sat in absolute silence, said to me, "'Jack will show you your room. I have given you the room in the tower.' Quite inexplicably my heart sank at her words, I felt as if I had known that I should have the room in the tower and that it contained something dreadful and significant. Jack instantly got up and I understood that I had to follow him. In silence we passed through the hall and mounted a great oak staircase with many corners and arrived at a small landing with two doors set in it. He pushed one of these open for me to enter and without coming in himself, closed it after me. Then I knew that my conjecture had been right. There was something awful in the room, and with the terror of nightmare growing swiftly and enveloping me, I awoke in a spasm of terror. Now that dream, or variations on it, occurred to me intermittently for fifteen years. Most often it came in exactly this form— THE ARRIVAL, THE TEA LAID OUT ON THE LAWN, THE DEADLY SILENCE SUCCEEDED BY THAT ONE DEADLY SENTENCE, THE MOUNTING WITH Jack STONE UP TO THE ROOM IN THE TOWER WHERE HORROR DEALT, AND IT ALWAYS CAME TO A CLOSE IN THE NIGHTMARE OF TERROR AT THAT WHICH WAS IN THE ROOM, THOUGH I NEVER SAW WHAT IT WAS. At other times I experienced variations of this same theme. Occasionally, for instance, we would be sitting at dinner in the dining room, into the windows of which I had looked on the first night when the dream of this house visited me. But wherever we were, there was the same silence, the same sense of dreadful oppression and foreboding, and the silence I knew, would always be broken by Mrs. Stone saying to me, "'Jack will show you to your room. "'I have given you the room in the tower,' upon which this was invariable. "'I had to follow him up the oak staircase "'with many corners, "'and enter the place that I dreaded more and more "'each time that I visited it in my sleep, "'or again,' I would find myself playing cards still in silence in a drawing room lit with immense chandeliers that gave a blinding illumination. What the game was, I have no idea. What I remember, with a sense of miserable anticipation, was that soon Mrs. Stone would get up and say to me, Jack will show you to your room. I have given you the room in the tower. This drawing room where we were playing cards was next to the dining room and, as I have said, was always brilliantly illuminated, whereas the rest of the house was full of dusk and shadows. And yet, how often, in spite of those bouquets of light, I have not poured over the cards that were dealt me "'scarcely able for some reason to see them. "'Their designs, too, were strange. "'There were no red suits, but all were black, "'and among them were certain cards which were black all over. "'I hated and dreaded those. "'As this dream continued to recur, "'I got to know the greater part of the house.' There was a smoking room beyond the drawing room at the end of the passage with a green baize door. It was always very dark there, and as often as I went there I passed somebody whom I could not see in the doorway coming out. Curious developments, too, took place in the characters that peopled the dream as might happen to living persons. Mrs. Stone, for instance, who, when I first saw her, had black hair, became grey, and instead of rising briskly, as she had done at first when she said, Jack will show you to your room, I have given you the room in the tower, got up very feebly, as if the strength was leaving her limbs. Jack also grew up, and became a rather ill-looking young man, with a brown moustache, while one of his sisters ceased to appear, and I understood she was married. Then it so happened that I was not visited by this dream for six months or more, and I began to hope, in such inexplicable dread did I hold it, that it had passed away for good. But one night, after this interval, I again found myself being shown out onto the lawn for tea, and Mrs. Stone was not there, while the others were all dressed in black. At once I guessed the reason, and my heart leaped at the thought that perhaps this time I should not have to sleep in the room in the tower, and though we usually all sat in silence, on this occasion the sense of relief made me talk and laugh as I had never yet done. But even then matters were not altogether comfortable, for no one else spoke, but they all looked secretly at each other, and soon the foolish stream of my talk ran dry, and gradually an apprehension worse than anything I had previously known gained on me as the light slowly faded. Suddenly a voice which I knew well broke the stillness, the voice of Mrs. Stone saying, Jack will show you to your room. I have given you the room in the tower. It seemed to come from near the gate in the red brick wall that bounded the lawn, and looking up, I saw that the grass outside was sown thick with gravestones. A curious grayish light shone from them, and I could read the lettering on the grave nearest me, and it was in evil memory of Julia Stone. And as usual, Jack got up, and again I followed him through the hall and up the staircase with many corners. On this occasion, it was darker than usual, and when I passed into the room in the tower, I could only just see the furniture, the position of which was already familiar to me. Also, There was a dreadful odor of decay in the room, and I woke, screaming. The dream, with such variations and developments as I have mentioned, went on at intervals for fifteen years. Sometimes I would dream it two or three nights in succession. Once, as I have said, there was an intermission of six months. But taking a reasonable average, I should say, that I dreamed it quite as often as once in a month. It had, as is plain, something of nightmare about it, since it always ended in the same appalling terror, which so far from getting less, seemed to me to gather fresh fear every time that I experienced it. There was, too, a strange and dreadful consistency about it. The characters in it, as I had mentioned, got regularly older. Death and marriage visited this silent family, and I never in the dream, after Mrs. Stone had died, set eyes on her again. But it was always her voice that told me that the room in the tower was prepared for me, and whether we had tea out on the lawn, or the scene was laid in one of the rooms overlooking it, I could always see her gravestone standing just outside the iron gate. It was the same, too, with the married daughter. Usually she was not present, but once or twice she returned again, in the company with a man, whom I took to be her husband. He, too, like the rest of them, was always silent, but owing to the constant repetition of the dream, I had ceased to attach, in my waking hours, any significance to it. I never met Jack Stone again during all those years, nor did I ever see a house that resembled this dark house of my dream. And then something happened. I had been in London in this year, up until the end of July, and during the first week in August, went down to stay with a friend in a house that he had taken for the summer months in the Ashdown Forest district. Of Sussex. I left London early, for John Clinton was to meet me at Forest Row Station, and we were going to spend the day golfing and go to his house in the evening. He had his motor with him, and we set off about five of the afternoon. After a thoroughly delightful day for the drive, the distance being some ten miles. As it was still early, we did not have tea at the clubhouse, but waited till we should get home. As we drove, the weather, which up till then had been, though hot, deliciously fresh, seemed to me to alter in quality and became very stagnant and oppressive. And I felt that indefinable sense of ominous apprehension that I am accustomed to before thunder, John, however, did not share my views, attributing my loss of lightness to the fact that I had lost both my matches. Events proved, however, that I was right, though I do not think that the thunderstorm that broke that night was the sole cause of my depression. Our way lay through deep high-banked lanes, and before we had gone very far, I fell asleep and was only awakened by the stopping of the motor and with a sudden thrill, partly of fear, but chiefly of curiosity, I found myself standing in the doorway of my house of dream. We went, I half wondering whether or not I was dreaming still, through a low oak-paneled hall and out onto the lawn where tea was laid in the shadow of the house. It was set in flower beds. A red brick wall with a gate in it bounded one side, and out beyond that was a space of rough grass with a walnut tree. The facade of the house was very long, and at one end stood a three storied tower, markedly older than the rest. Here, for the moment, all resemblance to the repeated dream ceased. There was no silent, and somehow terrible family, but a large assembly of exceedingly cheerful persons, all of whom were known to me. And in spite of the horror with which the dream itself had always filled me, I felt nothing of it now that the scene of it was reproduced before me. But I felt intense curiosity as to what was going to happen. Tea pursued its cheerful course and before long mrs clinton got up and at that moment i think i knew what she was going to say she spoke to me and what she said was jack will show you to your room i have given you the room in the tower at that for half a second the horror of the dream took hold of me again but it quickly passed and again I felt nothing more than the most intense curiosity. It was not very long before it was amply satisfied. John turned to me. Right up at the top of the house, he said. But I think you'll be comfortable. We're absolutely full up. Would you like to go and see it now? By Jove, I believe that you are right and that we are going to have a thunderstorm. How dark it has become. I got up and followed him. We passed through the hall and up the perfectly familiar staircase. Then he opened the door, and I went in. And at that moment, sheer unreasoning terror again possessed me. I did not know what I feared. I simply feared. Then, like a sudden recollection, When one remembers a name which has long escaped the memory, I knew what I feared. I feared Mrs. Stone, whose grave with the sinister inscription, In Evil Memory. I had so often seen in my dream, just beyond the lawn which lay below the window. And then once more the fear passed so completely, that I wondered what there was to fear. And I found myself sober and quiet, insane in the room in the tower the name of which i had so often heard in my dream and the scene of which was so familiar i looked around it with a certain sense of proprietorship and found that nothing had been changed from the dreaming nights in which i knew it so well just to the left of the door was the bed lengthways along the wall with the head of it in the angle and in a line with it was the fireplace and a small bookcase. Opposite the door, the outer wall was pierced by two lattice-paned windows, between which stood the dressing table, while ranged along the fourth wall was the washing stand and a big cupboard. My luggage had already been unpacked. For the furniture of the dressing and undressing lay orderly on the washstand and toilet table, while my dinner clothes were spread out on the coverlet of the bed. And then, with a sudden start of unexplained dismay, I saw that there were two rather conspicuous objects which I had not seen before in my dreams one, a life sized oil painting of Mrs. Stone the other a black-and-white sketch of Jack Stone, representing him as he appeared to me only a week before in the last of the series of these repeated dreams, a rather secret and evil-looking man of about thirty. His picture hung between the windows, looking straight across the room to the other portrait, which hung at the side of the bed. At that I looked next, and as I looked I felt once more The horror of nightmare seized me. It represented Mrs. Stone as I had seen her last in my dreams old and withered and white haired, but in spite of the evident feebleness of body, a dreadful exuberance and vitality shone through the envelope of flesh, an exuberance wholly malign, a vitality that foamed and frothed with unimaginable evil evil beamed from narrow, leering eyes, yet laughed in the demon-like mouth. The whole face was instinct with some secret and appalling mirth. The hands clasped together on the knee, seemed shaking with suppressed and nameless glee. Then I saw also that it was signed in the left-hand bottom corner, and wondering who the artist could be, I looked more closely and read the inscription, Julia Stone by Julia Stone. There came a tap at the door, and John Clinton entered. Got everything you want? he asked. Rather more than I want, said I, pointing to the picture. He laughed. Hard-featured old lady, he said. By herself, too, I remember Anyhow, she can't have flattered herself much. But don't you see, I said, it's scarcely a human face at all. It's the face of some witch, of some devil. He looked at it more closely. Yes, it isn't very pleasant, he said. Scarcely a bedside manner, eh? Yes, I can imagine getting the nightmare if I went to sleep with that close to my bed. I'll have it taken down if you like. I really wish you would, I said. He rang the bell, and with the help of a servant, we detached the picture and carried it out onto the landing and put it with its face to the wall. By Jove, the old lady is a weight, said John, mopping his forehead. I wonder if she had something on her mind. The extraordinary weight of the picture had struck me too. I WAS ABOUT TO REPLY WHEN I CAUGHT SIGHT OF MY OWN HAND. THERE WAS BLOOD ON IT, IN CONSIDERABLE QUANTITIES, COVERING THE WHOLE PALM. I'VE CUT MYSELF SOMEHOW, SAID I. JOHN GAVE ME A LITTLE STARTLED EXCLAMATION. WHY, I HAVE TWO, HE SAID. Simultaneously, the footman took out his handkerchief and wiped his hand with it. I saw that there was blood also on his handkerchief. John and I went back into the tower room and washed the blood off, but neither on his hand nor on mine was there the slightest trace of a scratch or a cut. It seemed to me that having ascertained this, we both, by a sort of tacit consent, did not allude to it again. Something in my case had dimly occurred to me that I did not wish to think about. It was but a conjecture, but I fancied that I knew the same thing had occurred to him. The heat and oppression of the air, for the storm we had expected was still undischarged, increased very much after dinner, and for some time most of the party among whom were John Clinton and myself, sat outside on the path bounding the lawn, where we had had tea. The night was absolutely dark, and no twinkle of star or moon ray could penetrate the pall of cloud that overset the sky. By degrees our assembly thinned. The women went up to bed. Men dispersed to the smoking or billiard room, and by eleven o'clock my host and I were the only two left. All the evening I thought he had something on his mind, and as soon as we were alone he spoke. The man who helped us with the picture had blood on his hand too. Did you notice? He said. I asked him just now if he had cut himself, and he said he supposed he had, but that he could not find no mark of it. Now, where did that blood come from? By dint of telling myself that I was not going to think about it, I had succeeded in not doing so, and I did not want, especially just at bedtime, to be reminded of it. I don't know, said I, and I don't really care so long as the picture of Mrs. Stone is not by my bed. He got up, but it's odd he said. Ha! Now you'll see another odd thing. A dog of his, an Irish terrier by breed, had come out of his house as we talked. The door behind us into the hall was open, and a bright oblong of light shone across the lawn to the iron gate which led onto the rough grass outside, where the walnut tree stood. I saw that the dog had all his hackles up, bristling with rage and fright. His lips were curled back from his teeth, as if he was ready to spring at something, and he was growling to himself. He took not the slightest notice of his master or me, but stiffly and tensely walked across the grass to the iron gate. There he stood for a moment, looking through the bars and still growling. Then, all of a sudden, his courage seemed to desert him. He gave one long howl and scuttled back to the house with a curious crouching sort of movement. "'He does that half a dozen times a day,' said John. "'He sees something which he both hates and fears.' I walked to the gate and looked over it. Something was moving on the grass outside.' and soon a sound which I could not instantly identify came to my ears. Then I remembered what it was. It was the purring of a cat. I lit a match and saw the purr, a big blue Persian, walking round and round in a little circle just outside the gate, stepping high and aesthetically, with tail carried aloft like a banner. ITS EYES WERE BRIGHT AND SHINING, AND EVERY NOW AND THEN IT PUT ITS HEAD DOWN AND SNIFFED AT THE GRASS. I LAUGHED. THE END OF THAT MYSTERY, I'M AFRAID, I SAID. HERE'S A LARGE CAT HAVING Walpurgis NIGHT ALL ALONE. YES, THAT'S DARIUS, SAID JOHN. HE SPENDS HALF THE DAY AND ALL THE NIGHT THERE. BUT THAT'S NOT THE END OF THE DOG MYSTERY. For Toby and he are the best of friends. But the beginning of the cat mystery. What's the cat doing there? And why is Darius pleased while Toby is terror-stricken? At that moment, I remembered the rather horrible detail of my dreams when I saw through the gate, just where the cat was now, the white tombstone with the sinister inscription. But before I could answer, the rain began as suddenly and heavily as if a tap had been turned on, and simultaneously the big cat squeezed through the bars of the gate and came leaping across the lawn to the house for shelter. Then it sat in the doorway, looking out eagerly into the dark. It spat and struck at John with its paw as he pushed it in in order to close the door somehow with the portrait of julia stone in the passage outside the room in the tower had absolutely no alarm for me and as i went to bed feeling very sleepy and heavy i had nothing more than interest for the curious incident about our bleeding hands and the conduct of the cat and dog the last thing i looked at before i put out my light was the square empty space by my bed Where the portrait had been. Here the paper was of its original full tint of dark red. Over the rest of the walls it had faded. Then I blew out my candle and instantly fell asleep. My awakening was equally instantaneous, and I sat bolt upright in bed under the impression that some bright light had been flashed in my face though it was now absolutely pitch dark. I knew exactly where I was in the room which I had dreaded in dreams, but no horror that I ever felt when asleep approached the fear that now invaded and froze my brain. Immediately after a peal of thunder crackled just above the house, but the probability that it was only a flash of lightning which awoke me gave no reassurance to my galloping heart. Something I knew was in the room with me. And instinctively, I put out my right hand, which was nearest the wall, to keep it away, and my hand touched the edge of a picture frame hanging close to me. I sprang out of bed, upsetting the small table that stood by it and I heard my watch, candle, and matches clatter onto the floor. But for the moment there was no need of light, for a blinding flash leaped out of the clouds and showed me that by my bed again hung the picture of Mrs. Stone. And instantly the room went into blackness again. But in that flash I saw another thing also, namely a figure that leaned over the end of my bed watching me. It was dressed in some close-clinging white garment, spotted and stained with mold, and the face was that of the portrait. Overhead the thunder cracked and roared, and when it ceased and the deathly stillness succeeded, I heard the rustle of movement Coming near me, and more horribly yet, perceived an odor of corruption and decay. And then a hand was laid on the side of my neck, and close beside my ear I heard quick taken, eager breathing. Yet I knew that this thing, though it could be perceived by touch, by smell, by eye, and by ear, was still not of this earth but something that had passed out of the body and had power to make itself manifest. Then a voice, already familiar to me, spoke. I knew you would come to the room in the tower. It said, I have been long waiting for you. At last you have come. Tonight I shall feast. Before long we will feast together and the quick breathing came closer to me i could feel it on my neck and that the terror which i think had paralyzed me for the moment gave way to the wild instinct of self-preservation i hit wildly with both arms kicking out at the same moment and i heard a little animal squeal and something soft dropped with a thud beside me I took a couple of steps forward, nearly tripping up over whatever it was that lay there, and by the merest good luck, found the handle of the door. In another second, I ran out on the landing and banged the door behind me. Almost at the same moment, I heard a door open somewhere below, and John Clinton, candle in hand, came running upstairs. What is it? he said. I sleep just below you. I heard a noise as if, good heavens, there's blood on your shoulder. I stood there, so he told me afterwards, swaying from side to side, white as a sheet, with the mark on my shoulder, as if a hand covered with blood had been laid there. It's in there, I said, pointing. She YOU KNOW, THE PORTRAIT IS IN THERE TOO, HANGING UP ON THE PLACE WE TOOK IT FROM. AT THAT HE LAUGHED. MY DEAR FELLOW, THIS IS MERE NIGHTMARE, HE SAID. HE PUSHED BY ME AND OPENED THE DOOR, I STANDING THERE SIMPLY inert WITH TERROR, UNABLE TO STOP HIM, UNABLE TO MOVE. Phew, WHAT AN AWFUL SMELL he said. Then there was silence. He had passed out of my sight behind the open door. Next moment, he came out again as white as myself and instantly shut it. Yes, the portrait's there, he said. And on the floor is a thing, a thing spotted with earth like what they bury people in. Come away, quick come away. How I got downstairs, I hardly know. An awful shuddering and nausea of the spirit rather than of the flesh had seized me, and more than once he had to place my feet upon the steps, while every now and then he cast glances of terror and apprehension up the stairs. But in time we came to his dressing room on the floor below, and there I told him, What I have here described. The sequel can be made short, indeed. Some of my readers have perhaps already guessed what it was. If they remember that inexplicable affair of the churchyard at West Folly, some eight years ago, where an attempt was made three times to bury the body of a certain woman who had committed suicide. On each occasion, the coffin was found in the course of a few days again protruding from the ground. After the third attempt, in order that the thing should not be talked about, the body was buried elsewhere in unconsecrated ground. Where it was buried was just outside the iron gate of the garden belonging to the house where this woman had lived. She had committed suicide in a room At the top of the tower in that house. Her name was Julia Stone. Subsequently, the body was again secretly dug up and the coffin was found to be full of blood. You've been listening to The Room in the Tower by E.F. Benson. I hope you've enjoyed the story, and I hope you only have pleasant dreams. I've enjoyed being with you, but now I must go. But I'll be back. Thank you.